Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and Science Fiction, a production of the New Books Network. I'm Rob Wolf, and this is the Sleepless in Karachi edition. My guest today is Dina Shaw, author of Before She Sleeps. The LA Times called it a thrilling novel with exquisite social commentary, and Before She Sleeps was among the books highlighted in The Atlantic recently, as they documented, as the article's headline put it, the Remarkable Rise of the Feminist Dystopia. Bina Shah is with me now via Skype from her home in Karachi, Pakistan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure to be with you today, Rob. Before She Sleeps is set in the near future in a place called Green City, which is the capital of a country called Southwest Asia. And the defining social and political force when your book opens is that there's a huge imbalance in the number of women versus men, with women being devastatingly scarce. I was wondering if you could explain the backstory to that and what that means for the women in Green City. Yes. So the book takes place about 70 years into the future, so not too far ahead. Uh, And due to a combination of circumstances which include a limited nuclear war between Pakistan and India and then the fallout from that war and then also the economic turmoil that that event brings plus the ongoing societal custom of preferring boys to girls and the go the uh, the accompanying gender selection so that is you know aborting female fetuses or just not taking care of girls once they're born, neglecting their health and their nutrition, you end up with a situation where the vast majority of that territory's women, that region's women, perish. So you have a ratio that is more like, you know, between 15 to 20 men for every one or two women. And what that does to society is to throw it completely out of balance to bring about a a chaotic time, a very dangerous time as people riot and there's complete anarchy in society. And so there are a few authoritarian leaders that feel they need to take control of the situation very quickly. They do so and uh, they set up what is a very controlling and very repressive society aided by the use of technology to try and bring things back into balance. And what that does is that that they mandate that women, the surviving women must take multiple husbands because there just aren't enough women to go around. And that these women must have as many children as possible. So they encourage, uh, more than encourage, they they stress childbearing, they give these women fertility drugs, they, they check up on their cycles, their fertility cycles, they reward or punish according to how many children a woman bears. That is the setup. Nice positive story there. Right. Well, you focus on a group of women 
who have freed themselves from this life, and they do so by essentially hiding underground. And to survive, they provide a particular service to powerful men. And I was wondering if you could explain what it is they do and, and how you came up with this idea. Well, what it is that they do, and, and again, when you say, you know, they free themselves, uh, there's been some commentary from readers about that, that actual word of freedom, how free are they really? And the answer is not as free as you think. You know, they refuse to be part of this system, but their choices are not many. So they've created their own ecosystem, and it does literally take place. It, 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 they live underground, literally in an abandoned nuclear bunker, which they have fashioned to, uh, you know, to suit their own needs. And what they do is because they, they need to survive and they don't have, you know, any way of sustaining themselves. They can't grow food for themselves. They can't look after their own you know, sustenance. What they do is they need allies and how they earn these allies is by entering into this kind of contract or agreement with a few select men, elite men of Green City, and they provide intimacy. And it's not intimacy of the sexual kind, but it's an intimacy of companionship. And that means that these women who are young, mostly, they go out to spend a certain amount of hours at night with a client and they do whatever it is that, that you would normally do with, with a man, whether it is to sit and talk or just be silently there next to them and, and while these men sleep or are not sleeping, as the case may be. But there's no sex involved in this transaction because they're not prostitutes. They're companions. So that's, that's sort of the bargain. And it, it may seem a bit like, well, why would there not be sex involved? What is what is up with that? You know, why did you make this choice to turn it into that? Because what I wanted to say is that what is a true woman's worth? What is her true worth? When in the, the world that's going on above them, the woman's value is only how many children she can produce and how many husbands she can sort of be, be attached to. I wanted these women to say, well, we don't do that. We're different. We're providing something that is not state mandated, but it's something that goes back to a time when there were more of us and our companionship, our partnership was valued. But of course, because it's this situation, it's kind of, a, it's, it's an illusion that they're providing to these men. I'd like to explore that word freedom a little more. You really homed in on it when I mentioned it. And I've been thinking about that too. Perhaps more accurately, I, I should have said that the women in this group and they, they live in an area that they've called the Panah. That's, that's kind of the, the way they define themselves, the women of the Panah. And they live more freely than most women. But it's true that, that in so many ways, they're still ultimately dependent on men. And in this case, it's these elite men for whom they provide this service of companionship. And... I wonder how you grappled with that issue of their need to have agency and control over their lives, and yet, even in this form of freedom that they enjoyed, there's all these limits that are ex externally imposed on them. Well, you know, I think when I was working on the idea of this underground place where they're hiding in 
plain sight, as it were. You know, it, I, it made me think of a book that was very in, influential for me as a young teenager, young woman, and that's The Diary of Anne Frank. So here is a, a, a few families, a few Jewish families who are trying to escape, you know, being deported to concentration camps in Amsterdam. But they can't escape. They can't get out of the country. It's too late. So what do they do? They go underground. They are hiding in the secret annex. Now, they're not free. They're completely constrained. If you've read the book, you would know, you know, they cannot speak at all or make any noise during the day. Nighttime is when they have more freedom to listen to the radio, to talk, to, to move around. So it's the same idea that these people are not free in the sense that they're not free to walk around outside or live their lives normally, but they are free from being killed, being deported, being taken away to, to be tortured and enslaved. And that is the amount of agency that they can express in those circumstances of World War II, but they don't hesitate to take that chance. They don't hesitate to grab it. And they accept living in those conditions because A, they think it's temporary, and B, it's better than the alternative. So that was kind of the mindset that I went into when I was looking at these women and what are they willing to accept and why are they willing to do this bargain. And it's not as if in their interactions with these men, they don't set boundaries and they don't say no quite often to their sometimes outright requests to have sex or, or as the story unfolds, certain demands are placed on them and certain risks are taken by the women. So they are constantly, it seems to me, pushing boundaries in a search for more and greater freedom. Well, they're grappling with circumstances that are never fixed, you know, and, and I mean, we see so much in relationships between men and women that, you know, it starts off as one thing, for example, just as friends, and then something changes and something more is demanded by one party and not given willingly or given willingly by the other party. And so it's a kind of a constant negotiation of, of these boundaries and these feelings going on. And I think the women really do hold their own, helped, of course, by the rules that the founders of the Thanas set in the first place for various practical reasons. Sex is quite literally dangerous because if anyone would, were to fall pregnant, what would they do? They wouldn't be able to look after that child or... or take care of the, the increased medical needs of, of a mother-to-be. So they made that decision early on. Again, none of this is perfect. This is not a perfect system. It's not a perfect world. So they're just they're doing their best to survive under really, really abnormal circumstances. Sleep obviously plays a big role in the book. The title is Before She Sleeps, and the service that a lot of the women are providing included in that is being with the men as they sleep, watching them as they sleep, or holding them as they sleep. And then, of course, in the story, there's a drug that induces sleep, and that figures prominently in the plot line. And sleep is also obviously a metaphor for death, and there's a moment in the book when sleep is intended to mimic death, just as it does in Romeo and Juliet. So why did you make sleep so key to your book? You know, I really started off with the idea of a woman who has insomnia. 
And uh, the irony being that she is uh, supposed to be there so that a man can sleep in peace, but she can't sleep. So I just felt that the tension of that imagery was inspiring. And the novel, when I was working on it, work in progress, its, it's uh, working title was just Sleep. And then, of course, you know, I wanted to look at all the different dimensions of sleep. I wanted to look at, like you said, sleep as the metaphor for death. Sleep as, you know, what Shakespeare did with Romeo and Juliet when, well, I don't want to give too much away of the plot, but, you know. So I was looking at many dimensions of sleep. And also sleep as a, a metaphor for being unaware and then waking to certain realities and, and realizing that things are not all as they seem. I think there's just so many things that, that you can do with, with sleep as a, as a concept. And I just love the fact that it plays on so many levels. And I tried to make the book speak to those levels. And your main character, Sabine does in fact have insomnia and that, that is sort of a riveting tension of the book that she is helping others sleep even when she struggles herself with being able to. Yeah. And, and her insomnia really affects her at certain key moments of the book because, you know, anybody who's been an insomniac will tell you that, that, that it's like being in a waking dream. It's like being jet lagged. It's like just not being able to make anything make any sense, and yet you still have to function in some sort of way. So I was really interested in exploring that state of being between, you know, consciousness and unconsciousness. And then, of course, in sleep, you know, you, you, there's the very interesting concept of the dream state. It's very Jungian. So what kind of symbols and messages come to you in those dreams? I was looking at many, many things there. I hope it worked. I mean, I really, I, I really hoped that these things would all sort of coalesce into something that people could grasp and think about. I was very aware as I was reading Before She Sleeps that its meanings must be different for a reader in America versus a reader in Pakistan or anywhere else in the world, I assume. But uh, just looking at those two worlds, which I know you're familiar with, having lived in America for some time and having gone to college and graduate school here, but being of Pakistan. Can you help me unravel some of those meanings, how those themes and the way women are portrayed might be perceived or the messages that people might be picking up in the two countries? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I'm not really sure how to start answering it, but I can tell you that you know, Western readers approach this book and they're expecting some fantastic, like, Hunger Games type scenario where the women just come out as warriors and, and smash the patriarchy. And feminism in my part of the world, in, in the Middle East, in South Asia, it's a lot more subtle than that. We're dealing with tremendous amounts of misogyny, tremendous amounts of chauvinism, and great physical danger to to us in terms of gender-based violence. And so what I think women over the centuries have learned is not to directly confront that misogyny or that patriarchy, but to subvert it, to go around it, to comply with it when they need to, and then to get what they need out of it, and then try to surpass it, try to overcome it. So the actions of the women in my book 
seemed to some Western readers completely devoid of agency and completely, you know, dependent on men. But what I have learned from being a feminist and a woman in Pakistan for so long is that you need male allies. Feminism will go nowhere in such an extreme situation of patriarchy unless and until there are men that are willing to, you know, shoulder the burden with the women and say, this is an unfair system. Let's, I, I want to support you in dismantling it. So I think that was uh, key in my mind as I was writing this book. And then there are a lot of other subtleties. For example, again, going back to the question of why is there no sex involved? Now it's a very uh, Eastern thing. It's a very Islamic thing. The company of women that is not necessarily a sexual relationship. People really value the company of 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 women in general, mothers, aunts, sisters, female cousins, what have you. And those are non-sexual relationships, but they provide so much intimacy and so much companionship. And I think that that is one of the subtleties of, of Eastern and Muslim culture that I wanted to portray in the book may or may not have been picked up on, but is certainly picked up on by my Eastern readers, by my Muslim readers. So those are two of the main sort of crossroads of culture as I think it's best to say that that come up in the reading of this book. I was wondering too if there were parallels between being a writer and an activist as I think you are or you position yourself as in writing a book like this which is feminist and has a point to be made about oppression of women. And I wonder if there's a parallel to being a writer in Pakistan today. I'm not so familiar with the current state of affairs, but I, I did see a column you wrote in the New York Times uh, recently about Art Buckwald, the American political satirist, <laughs> and your father's interest in that and your, yours as a child, you know, reading and trying to understand satire. But you did note in that that Pakistani satirists, at the time at least, had to tread more carefully, that arrests of writers and journalists were frequent. I don't know how common that is today, but I imagine there are challenges of being an outspoken writer in Pakistan. Well, actually, you know, there was that repressive period during my childhood, and that went on for quite some time. Then it started to ease up in, in sort of the mid-1990s for a while because there was a big uh, opening up of the electronic media and we suddenly started getting satellite feeds and programs from America, from different parts of the world. And we also got the internet in 1996. So we had about a good 20 years of a lot of rapid exposure to many, many ideas and many systems and many ways of, of expression. Uh, and that, of course, sets off a flowering of expression and, and writing in Pakistan that goes on for about 20 years. And then we have all these magazines, blogs, websites, you name it. But in recent years, there started to be a, a bit of a crackdown again, I think, on freedom of expression, especially on social media platforms like Twitter and, and Facebook and governments are monitoring what citizens are saying. They're they're discouraging dissent. So I think times are becoming tricky again in Pakistan. 
and in other parts of, of the world as well, in China, for example, in India, in Saudi Arabia, in the Middle East. So, you know, there was a, there was a kind of a free-for-all while it was unregulated, unmonitored, and now governments are kind of saying, no, we don't want this actually. It, it makes us feel very insecure, so let's try and tighten it up again. So I think these things go in phases, and I'm hoping that eventually things will ease out and we'll be able to, again, speak with more freedom. But this is a, uh, I think this is a difficult time right now. One of the things that inspired you to write Before She Sleeps was the murder of your friend, the activist Sabine Mahmoud. And in fact, your main character has almost the same name. Maybe it's pronounced this name, actually, Sabine, but it's just spelled differently. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your friend and how her experience is reflected in the book. Right. Well, I'm afraid you got the wrong impression because I started writing this book. Uh, I wrote the first chapter of this book as a standalone short story in 2006, which is now 12 years ago. And my friend Sabine was murdered in 2015. So I had the idea for this book way, way earlier. And in fact, I started writing in earnest in about 2014. But she was killed halfway through the time that I was writing the book. And I had already chosen the name of the main character. There was no connection to, to my friend Sabine. But when this assassination took place, the pressure on me as I was writing the book really, really increased. I just suddenly felt like the whole what I was doing just took on a lot of lot more weight, a lot more resonance. There was a, a lot of urgency with which I was starting to write. And every day it just felt like I was trying to channel all the terrible feelings I was having about having lost this friend into the book. And I think you had told me that you found the book beautiful, but sad. And that's the sadness that I was feeling and having lost this, this fine person, this amazing person. So that is the story of Sabine and my novel. And she was, in fact, an outspoken activist whose outspokenness resulted in her, her murder. Is that the understanding? You know, she would never have called herself an activist. This is, and even I don't think of myself as an activist. This is kind of a label that we, we, we feel very bemused when people give it to us. We feel like we're just out there doing our work and saying what needs to be said and telling the truth about what we see in our lives around us. And if that's activism, then okay. Uh, Sabine set up a cultural cafe and she encouraged a space where people could come and discuss whatever they wanted to discuss and be whoever they wanted to be. It was a progressive kind of space. It was beyond politics. It was beyond religion, it was about humanity. And it was about people just feeling that kind of breathing space. And just having that place there really encouraged others to come and start expressing themselves and feeling freer than they had been encouraged to ever before. And she was such a role model for people because she encouraged, she embodied tolerance and she embodied diversity. She embodied the rights, human rights. I mean, just, just in being who she was and doing what she did, uh, she never made any money out of the space called the second floor T2F. 
she never, you know, profited from it. And she didn't want acclaim and recognition. She just wanted to, to do this because it was her heart's desire. Did she lose her life because of it or because of encouraging, you know, people speaking out? I just, I can't say. I think she lost her life to hatred, really. I think she lost her life to hatred from people that didn't want to see difference in our society, that didn't want to, to accept a heterogeneous vision of our society. They want something very homogenous and something where everybody thinks the same, acts the same, does the same, feels the same, believes in the same thing. So I think that that was the thing that killed her in the end. And has anything replaced her cafe as a as a cultural mecca, a magnet for diverse peoples to express themselves? Not only is her cafe continuing, T2F is still open today, and it, it, you know the activities are still going on, although management has changed hands. But other spaces are have been popping up, uh, modeled on what T2F was and is, and here and there in different cities. And there are more things like literature festivals and book discussions and panels and conferences and things like that. There's There's been a real flowering of civic society in the wake of, of what she started. So I am very proud of her. We all are. Well, that's very encouraging. So your previous six books, they weren't science fiction or dystopias. So why did you want to write a dystopia, or how did you end up embracing that genre for this particular book? And and did you confront any particular challenges unique to the genre as you were writing it? I was so tired of writing about my country in terms of terrorism, poverty, all the things that were just making the news all the time. I wanted to just start all over again. I just wanted to do something really different, something that really stretched my imagination and yet touched on the things that were important to me. So that's sort of the position of the status of women in society and the issue of imbalanced gender ratios and the unfair treatment of girls and women. I wanted to do something that took a long view of where we might be 50 to 70 years in the future if we continue with our current trends. And having read quite a bit of uh, fantasy, some science fiction, some you know, sort of uh, dystopian work when I was younger, I think that just intrigued me. It just, I, I sort of fell back on what I had remembered reading, for example, Dune by Frank Herbert or 1984, George Orwell or Brave New World. And I just felt like that was the genre that really fit what I wanted to do. So I, I went in that direction completely unprepared for how unprepared I was to do this and sort of learned as I go, as I went and every day said to myself, what am I doing? I'm crazy. What am I doing? This isn't going to work. What am I doing? Nobody's going to read this. And just really sort of made myself keep going, really annoyed the hell out of all my other writer friends and, and family and kept whining and whining about it for four years and eventually came through with this. Wasn't easy. And your next book, are you going to continue down this path? 
Dude, do you know how tired I am writing this one? I have no idea. <laughs> well, good. You deserve a break. No, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been asked a lot if there's going to be a sequel, if if there's going to be more, and and people, some people are like, I, what, why did you stop where you stopped? What, what, what? I was. It needs to go on longer. So maybe, maybe there's still a little more to say about this this world. Let's see. But I'm tired. Like I said, I do really need to take some time off. Well, thank you so much for taking the time now to come on New Books and Science Fiction. I really, really enjoyed talking to you about Before She Sleeps. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. I've been speaking with Bina Shaw, author of Before She Sleeps, which came out this past August from Delphinium Books. Please subscribe to New Books and Science Fiction and leave a review in the Apple Store. Your reviews help draw attention to the show and help others find us. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson, and I'm Rob Wolf. I wrote a book called The Alternate Universe. You can find me at robwolf.net, and thank you very much for listening.